getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Personally, I can't remember what I did yesterday, much less 10 years ago, but fortunately for us, my guest does. She takes us through detailed experiences of working in a very special classroom with severely disordered teenage young people. And I don't know how she did it, but as she shared, I felt like I was actually there in the room with the kids observing her therapy strategies. For example, she gives us a detailed account of how she expertly used role play videos in therapy that applied and transitioned into use in real situations. Get your listening ears on, along with paper and pencil. Here we go. Terry Farnham, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, is a speech-language pathologist who has worked in a variety of settings for several decades, including 20 years in the schools as well as in clinics and hospitals. She is a therapist's therapist. Currently, she has her own private practice in Mount Vernon, Ohio, called Clarity for Communication. She is an informed and experienced specialist in pediatric speech, language, and assistive technology services. In fact, she was the 2018 recipient of the National Patricia Lindemood Clinical Leadership Award for her role in promoting evidence-based practice in phonology within the profession. Very cool. In addition, she shared her practical knowledge via seminars for many years, including the Bureau of Education and Research, and that's where we met. And she's a popular presenter for conferences and conventions. She presents on a variety of professional issues, including how and why to do language samples and analysis, which is our very practical topic for today. Welcome to the Speech Link, Terry. It's great to be with you, Shar. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Thanks for coming back. This is your second podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have heard you say that language sampling and analysis is not just for the communication sciences and disorders graduate assistant. So in your paradigm of knowledge, what's behind that statement? I have uh, supervised a lot of clinical fellows over the years. And uh, every time language sampling comes up, you can see the deer in the headlights expression come over their faces because it's so much work they think. Because in graduate school, when you are supporting somebody's research, doing language sampling, you are doing phoneme by phoneme analysis, you're uh, recording hours and hours and hours and transcribing hours and hours and hours of information to do comparisons and so forth. And uh, the CFs tend to not view it as something that's practical to be done in real time in, in the field. My experience is that it's quite the opposite. It's my favorite kind of assessment to do because it gives me so much information about what kids know and how they use what they know about speech and language. 
Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. And I would tend to agree with those clinical fellowship students because, yeah, it is time consuming. And, you know, a lot of the things that happen in the university, like sitting down for an hour and doing a case history, mm -mm, that, that doesn't happen. Exactly. And doing, you know, this heavy duty, long language analysis, that just doesn't happen. But Terry, you use it in your practice and you use it successfully. And it gives you information, and I'm sure that you get a baseline, and it, you probably don't do just one language sample with your kids. You probably do several, getting information about how they're improving and so on. But tell me, why do you do it? I mean, those I'm just surmising, but why do you do a language sample and analysis? Well, I... Uh... When I returned to public education for as a practice site, I was working exclusively in preschool, and I had a lot of young children at age three coming over from early intervention and kids coming in for off the streets, you know, to be evaluated and so forth, and children with very little language and very little ability to respond to standardized tests. Uh, and so I started doing language sampling to see what they knew, what their vocabulary was like in a play setting. How how many words could I elicit in the half hour that we were allotted? How many things did they know? What other kinds of communication did they do? And so from that, I was able to at least establish a baseline that said, here's, here's where we're starting. The standard score that said less than 65 was not helpful when they didn't respond to more than two items that didn't give me much information, but a play-based language sample told me a lot about what they were able to do and what they, what they knew about communication, what they knew about the give and take of communication and what they didn't know. And at that age, there's a very simple measure of what they should be producing. At age two, children should have an average of two words in an utterance. Mm -hmm. At age three, it should be three and on up through age five or six. So uh, it became very easy to set goals for language development. And what I really like about it is that it allows me to look at lots of areas. If I, if I have a child that comes in that's using one word phrases, uh, maybe two occasionally, but the average is 1.2 or something right, like right. that, say MLU. Um, I can work on vocabulary, I can work on pragmatics, I can work on syntax, I can do all those things based on their MLU. So I don't have to write a specific goal <laughs> about syntax, right. a specific goal about vocabulary, and then have to you know document that somehow. The paperwork can be overwhelming if you have if you have the number of goals needed for a child who is has very limited verbal output. Mm -hmm. You're going to be you're going to spend most of your time writing progress reports right. because you've got all the, all these goals. So, but if you write that they're going to participate in you know a play based activity and have an MLU of 2.5, you've you've brought them from 1.2 to 2.5, hopefully, maybe even three two years of growth that is well documented as a solid measure of that kind of growth. And I can work on anything on any given day. I can, if I see that uh, they don't have the words to talk in the 
social dramatic play area when the other kids are playing restaurant. I can sit in there and we can work on that. If we're working on making those sentences longer, maybe I'm going to pull them aside and we're going to work on that a little bit. But I can do I can do all those things under the umbrella of increasing their MLU because all of those things feed MLU. It's a nice, big measure. Oh, ingenious. Ingenious. Good for you. Because language is complex. There's so many components. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can go crazy. <laughs> Just trying to write it all down and, oh, hit all the marks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you try to identify every little piece of syntax that they need to know, you're going to go crazy too. But if you're deleting copula and uh, articles and infinitives and that sort of thing, that becomes a goal. But if you start putting them in, it feeds your MLU as well. So yeah. with all those things, it just, it just worked beautifully at that age to measure what the global growth that I wanted to see in kids. That is so smart, Terry. That is probably one of the smartest things <laughs> I have ever heard. I am totally serious. <laughs> You're too kind. You're too kind. Oh, no, no. It's, it's something that all of us can do. And it's like this very, very broad goal. And then, of course, you have all these smaller benchmarks underneath there. If you need to put a few of those down, that is so small. Okay, let's look at doing the initial language sample, the analysis. Do you record it? Do you sit and type it as you go? How do you do it? And does it differ between ages and levels of students? Well, back in the day when I started doing this with preschoolers, I did not have a computer to use. That gives you any idea of how long ago that was. Mm -hmm. um, early 90s. Right. And uh, so, uh, but I was dealing with children who had very limited verbal output. So I mostly hand wrote it. <laughs> when I understood the words, I wrote them down. And if I didn't, I put a, a long line to show that there was a word there that I could count, even if I didn't understand what it was. I, I did audio recordings at that point. And then uh, within the about, about 95, we started getting some video equipment for our program. And I started using that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was helpful, but it's still, it was very cumbersome. Today, it is so easy to record and get a good recording. You, of course, have to have parent permission to record. But beyond that, it's, it's so simple because you can uh, use your iPad or your phone and you can literally scrub through frame by frame. When you miss something, you can go back and you watch the child's mouth slowly articulating what it was backwards till you, till you get to the place where you know you were and you, you move forward. None of that watching the counter on the cassette recorder thing anymore. It, right. It's so simple. And having the video also helps you know what the context was, especially if you're doing a, a play-based kind of assessment. Uh, because you won't, if you just are recording, you may not know what the child is trying to do when you're trying to uh, figure it out later. Modern recording has just made it easy. Yes. Do you have any favorite apps that you like to use? I just use the video camera on my phone or my iPad. Uh, okay. And uh, I don't do any editing because I want the whole thing. <laughs> that's it that's right. my corpus right so i right. you know then i store it in uh, a uh, secure file or on a uh, 
flash drive, you know, in the locked drawer and all that stuff. And, and that's it. Uh, you can ex export anything from your phone as a MP4. And so it can be viewed anywhere. I actually had, uh, when I was getting ready for our conference where I was presenting on this, I had a, a child at the local parochial school who was just, just charming, utterly charming, and was a perfect example of the things that you can measure using mean length of utterance and just the whole language sample analysis. And when I asked her parents if it would be okay, her mother's response was, can we have the recording? <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, of course you can. And yes. she was utterly delightful. I'm sure it's going to be something they go back to, you know, when, when it's high school graduation time and they're going to play this and say, oh, look <laughs> at how cute you were. Yes. Uh, because <laughs> yes. she was utterly charming. But so I, I have often offered that as well using video in other contexts too. Yeah. Just you give it to the parents so they know exactly what you've recorded and there's no no mystery about it. Yeah, there you go. Good idea. Well, I have a, a suggestion. I have used something on my phone called Quick Voice 2, like the number two, text. Quick Voice to text. Ah. Okay. And it, there's one that comes in that's blue, <laughs> blue icon. Okay. And, but you want the one the, you want the one that's red. And I think it's like, I don't know, two or three dollars or something. And it's not a big deal. But here's what you can do. Not only can you record their voice, okay, it's not visual, it's just audio recording, but you can then email it to yourself or to the teacher or to the parent, and it will transcribe it nice. into text. Yes. It's the only thing that I know where you can end up with a recording and a transcribed text because there's Dragon and, you know, a few others right, right. that, you know, you can just talk and then it'll just type it for you, but you don't end up with a recording. Very nice. I will have to try that. I wonder what it does, do you know, with children with intelligibility issues? I know exactly what it does. It doesn't transcribe a thing on that. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, it doesn't say, oh, yes, that was supposed to be an L. <laughs> no, no, it ends up gobbledygook. But at least you have something there. And if you have the recording, you can go back and, you know, isolate what they did. It takes another layer of... Uh objection away because if you don't even have to transcribe it you just have to go back and check at somebody else's transcription then then you're you're way ahead yes i've uh, kind of got a little system going where I, I mean i i record it video record it and then i type as i'm listening to the recording and scrubbing back through and and all that sort of thing after the child is gone and i'm generating the the printed sample and then I take the sample and I thought, this is, you know, life has gotten so much easier. Even when technology fails, it's still better than the alternative. <laughs> uh, I copy, I, I, I will put it in, type it in a word processing document, hit, just hit enter, return at the end of every utterance. And then at the end of the day, well, at the end of the sample, I have a word count because the word processor counts it, whether it's a real word or whether it's something the kid made up or whether I have put in phonetic fonts, if there's a space before and after it, it counts it as a word. Mm -hmm. Then all I have to do is select it all and use bullets and numbering, number it. I know how many utterances there were. And you've got your, the foundation for MLU for words right there. Very cool. Wow. 
And it, it's so simple. But now if somebody's going to transcribe it for me, that would be even better. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, you just took another step away. Um, the, the, the thing that uh, I learned recently that has changed a little bit in the word processor that I use, I used to, as I mentioned, when I was hand transcribing on the fly while the kids were in the room with me, I would use a big underline to show that there was a word that was unintelligible. So I, I just have done that when typing, I just, you know, put like a blank and go on to the next thing, space before and after. It used to count it as a word. Somewhere in the last 12 months, it stopped counting that as a word. So now I put XXXX with space before and after. So I know there was a word there that was unintelligible. It will count that as a word. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little tweak that has to be done to make it, make it work better. Yeah. Well, you know, in preparation for our time today, I did some research and I came up with a research article that was published in 2016. Mm -hmm. And the title is Use of Language Sample Analysis by School-Based SLPs, Results of a Nationwide Survey. Mm -hmm. And it's Pavelko, I think is the last name. Yes. And uh, it looks like they sent out over 1,300 surveys. And, you know, they came up with lots of information and data and so on, but the bottom line is, and, and why I'm mentioning it, is that at that time, and the survey went out in 2012, 2013, mm -hmm. that very few people in the schools, few SLPs, were doing language samples and analysis. And their number one concern was that it was too time consuming. 78% of those that responded said it was too time consuming. And what you are telling me are some ways to cut that time consumption of, because you have to work with a child. I mean, that's not part of the, the time element, but it's that analysis of, mm -hmm. and you are giving some very creative, very foundational ways to save time. But how do you analyze the actual language piece? Well, uh, MLU, I've already mentioned, and that is, you know, that's the, kind of the gold standard till you get to a certain age, around, you know, six or seven, that uh, nice straight line, one, two, three, four, five, six words tends to taper off. Uh, so then it becomes a little more difficult. Where I go, uh, well, I'm going to, for younger children, I'm going to do MLU right. for sure. And older kids as well, because lots of times they don't have good output, even if they are capable of it. Then mm -hmm. um, I'm also going to look at, there's MLU words. And I think this is another thing that is kind of that, I did this in grad school, I'm never doing it again, <laughs> uh, reaction is that there are lots of ways of looking at MLU or a couple of ways. And one is morphemes. And that really seems to escalate what you have to look at. I mean, you have to be much more fine-grained and careful about looking at each word and seeing what's there, et cetera, et cetera, so, to count each one. But the, the reality is, according to research, that those two measures, MLU words or MLU morphemes, really aren't that much different. Uh -huh. They don't, it's, it doesn't distinguish between children who are using lots of words, but not a lot of morphemes, or children who are using morphemes 
appropriately and using a lot of words. It doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to draw that line. It could give you some information for growth for a child who has no verb endings or plurals and that sort of thing, but uh, it may not. You probably don't have to start there. Uh, you can just do MLU. Right. Um, another thing uh, we, you mentioned, we, we touched on articulation. One of the things I look at too is how many words were correct in the sample. Most of the research uh, in phonology, articulation, speech intelligibility, they, their analysis is uh, the number of phonemes correct or the percent of phonemes correct. And I'm here to tell you, I don't have time to count phonemes. No. Uh, <laughs> no, and when, no. And when you've got a kid who's unintelligible, what phoneme are they saying? How many were there? Yeah. Who knows? So you can't do that. But uh, I've always been looking for a measure of intelligibility. And what I finally came up with was to do the language sample. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, well, I, backing up here a little bit, one of the issues with intelligibility is that we're speech language pathologists third session, most of what the kid says is completely intelligible to me because I have figured out their system, even if they're highly unintelligible. Yeah. So, so my rating of intelligibility is highly suspect. <laughs> but even though I can understand them, I still can recognize an error when I hear one. Right. So if I go back and do the language sample, I'm going to count how many words had no errors in them at all, no speech sound errors. And then I'm going to divide that by the total number of words spoken, which my word count gave me. So I do have to count words without errors. I have to highlight them or some, you know, give some indication that the, uh, which words were correct and which weren't. And I get a percent of words correct. For a child I'm working with right now, it was 24% mm. of his words had no errors. Okay. So my goal then becomes that he's going to produce, in a, in a language sample, 75% of the words are going to be spoken completely correctly. So if he makes an R error in the middle of the word, it's wrong. I'm not, so I'm not shooting for 100% for a four-year-old. I'm shooting for uh, something that's going to be a whole lot better than right. what he's got right. at 24%. Uh, and, you know, we're going to get there and it becomes a very easy way to measure progress because when I, the next time I go, the first time I do a sample, I tend, I, my tendency is to write out, type the words that were correct, just because it's easier than transcribing them phonetically. The words that were incorrect, I'm going to transcribe phonetically uh -huh. and then I'm going to count up those things at the end and get the percent of words correct. The next time I do it, I understand the kid. I'm just going to type what I hear or let a uh, quick voice transcribe it. And I, then I'm going to underline the words that had errors in it. Mm -hmm. And then I just, it, it much easier to count and a lot less transcription time. And what I'm going to see is that percent of words correct is going to rise over time. And what we're getting then is an indication of their overall intelligibility, their overall improvement, not strictly intelligibility, but speech sound production in a global way, just like MLU gives it for, for language for young children. Yes. You know, I'm also wondering, does the activity have something to do with it and the manipulatives and the things that you're playing with and things that you're doing? Because, you know, you're, if you're working with ball, a ball one week, and then, you know, the next week you're, you know, blowing bubbles or something, you're going to be getting different words. Do you try 
to have some level of consistency so that you can get similar content of the words? Well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> what I tell okay. you, with, uh, with very young children, I'm going to do, I'm going to play with my barn and uh, farm animals and that sort of thing or the house or, or something like that. So there are manipulatives. We've got a chance to have a nonverbal conversation as well as a verbal conversation. You mm -hmm. know, I can put things, and have the people talk to each other and all that sort of thing. So right. that's what I'm going to do there. And that may continue or they may get to a, they will get to a level that, you know, that really doesn't measure what they, what they can do anymore. There's a fair amount of research out there that says that, you know, there's really two ways of sort of eliciting language. And one is a conversational sample and the other is uh, a narrative sample, re story retelling. Mm -hmm. And um, what they found is there's not, again, a significant difference between those two kinds of means of collecting a language sample for children up through about age six or seven. Uh -huh. Beyond that, then narrative becomes the way to measure those longer sentences that you want to hear, how many uh, different kinds of uh, complexity in their sentences they're using. That kind of thing emerges in narrative and isn't typically seen to a great enough degree to be measured in conversation. Okay, that makes total sense. So do you ever use wordless books? Yes, actually, that's usually my starting point. Uh, I got into uh, wordless books after, you know, kind of trying to catch up on developments in narrative structures and that sort of thing. And what they use for all the research is, or much of it, is uh, the Boy, Dog, and Frog series by Mercer Mayer. Right. And so I have several of those, and I'll give one of those one time, and I'll have them tell another story the next time, or maybe the same story again. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found that be, uh, from age four on, most children will simply tell me the story. I don't have to start. I don't have to tell them the story and then ask them to retell it. And in fact, for a young child, that is somewhat intimidating, I think, to, because they feel like they have to tell it exactly the way yes. you told it. And instead, we just do kind of a back and forth. We'll look at the page. Uh, you know, if he doesn't seem to be looking at the, the thing that is the, the main occurrence on that page, I'll go, oh my gosh, look, look what happened to the frog. Mm -hmm. And then wait for the child to respond. And so that's that's pretty much how I do it. And then for older children, the suggestion now, uh, I've, it's fun that we're doing this today. I got an email, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, from Plural Publishing that uh, Marilyn Nippold has just published a book on language sampling. And she did a whole lot of research on uh, how to elicit language samples that are meaningful from for analysis, that is, from older children, including adolescents. Wow. And one of the things that she did was use fables. Oh. Tell the, you tell the, read the fable together with pictures, cover up the text, and then have the child retell the fable. That's the first phase of the uh, language sample. And then she has a series of four questions that she asks about the fable that... Uh, give a, an idea of what the child's understanding of the fable is and uh, also uh, can elicit those kind of complex sentences that we should be hearing. Here's her questions. Uh, do you agree with the moral of this story? Mm -hmm. Why do you agree or why do you disagree? Can you think of an example in real life where that moral would apply? 
is there anything you would like to add about the moral of this story? So you've got them thinking at a, a much more abstract level oh, yeah. than just retelling a story and then uh, having to share their reasoning verbally, which is going to draw out uh, a lot more complex sentences. And in fact, uh, I'm just looking at uh, total communication units for one of those uh, fables was, oh, that's that's total number of sentences. I'm sorry. the w- are Between 18 and 20. Uh, and then the uh, mean for the, the MLCU, she calls it mean length of communication unit, mm-hmm. 12. 12 words, 11 to 12 words. So that's a significant rise over what we expect to see if a child's just having a chat. Yes. So it's it's a very interesting strategy. I'm anxious to see what she, how she fleshes that out in the book. You know, I saw that book too. We must have got the same email. Yeah, and I'm thinking about getting it. But um, I have a resource that I'd like to throw out. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite authors is Marianne Hoberman. Oh, yes. So you know her too, H-O-B-E-R-M-A-N. She has a book on fables. And, you know, she has a series, I'll read to you, you read to me. Uh-huh. And there's many books and I probably have most of them. <laughs> there's even a really cute one on Halloween stories. Um, but the one on fables is more advanced language wise, far as the, the total words and the number of words in the sentences and the complexity of the information is much more more advanced Uh and i would highly recommend that book and the fables are really good Uh and she has other books that have much easier reading lower level of reading but they're usually very fun very well written very interesting excellent excellent you know the other thing uh as i thought about the whole fable thing was that um one of the things i like about doing language sample analysis is that it gives me that broad picture, but I can also look within that broad picture at the big areas within language and think of the pragmatic information you would get from having a child retell a fable and then explain why or why not, why it was true or why it wasn't true, the the, uh, the moral, yes, why that made sense and relating an incident where they had seen it happen or not happen. Uh, I, th- I think you would get a tremendous amount of pragmatic information. You know, we have we have checklists for pragmatics, and there are some really good uh, tools out there where children are looking at pictures and you know they, of chaotic scenes and tell me what's wrong. What tell me about the girl at the desk who's and they what should she say? Yeah, that's it. But it's still it's still contrived. In this kind of situation, it's not contrived. It's real. It's real language. It's coming out of my head, and I am trying to explain to you why this is the case. Yes. And if I can't do that, then I've got some pragmatic language deficit. That makes total sense. Um, we hopscotched from two and three year olds <laughs> up to maybe to adolescence, and we kind of left out some of those the middle ground. And the middle ground is usually where most of us think of doing a language sample. And that is, it, it is much more complex and just it, mm-hmm. it takes a little more work. So fill us in on maybe what you use 
how you analyze, and you've talked about some of the things that you look at, but maybe you could get a little bit more detailed. Let's say I'm working with, you know, a first grader or a second grader, you know, a fairly average intelligence and, you know, good cognitive skills, but how do we approach those levels of kids and their language? I am inclined to use the story retail for those kids because it does elicit more more uh, complex language, less cocktail speech, so to speak. I mean, if we're just if we're just having a chat, a kid can come across really well mm-hmm. and still have some gaping holes in their language ability. Where um, if I if they're having to retell a story, they're having to call up relevant vocabulary. They're having to give me the sequence of events. They're having to explain cause and effect. There's uh, there's a lot of things happening in a story retell that don't happen in just uh, conversational give and take, especially the, with the give and take piece. When we're having a conversation, we don't tend to speak in big, long sentences. I tell you something and you go, that happened to me last week and you tell me something but it's it it's not we're not speaking at erudite uh academic kinds of levels where telling a story requires some of that so one of the things to look at when they are retelling a story is uh the number of different words they use and there's actually some guidance from the literature i have a uh handout that's at my teachers pay teacher site that is uh has a summary of a bunch of the uh, articles about children up to about age eight, I think it is. So, so, so I count total number of different words. What difference does that make? Well, there are articles that say at age six it looks like this. At age eight, it looks like this. So you can you can ballpark. It's not standardized assessment, but you can say, wow, he only used five. You know. 75 different words in 10 minutes and this says he should be using you know 200 different words in mm-hmm. in a 50 utterance sample that's probably extreme but it's a easy to measure believe it or not because you can use a spreadsheet to do it you type in the first word that you hear you go to the next line type in the next one type in the next one type in the next one oh wait it pops up with a list of words because you've already used those first two letters once. You look and see if the word you're about to type is there. If it is on that list, that means it's already been counted. You don't type it, you type the next one. Ah. And then when your spreadsheet's done, you go down to the bottom and you say, oh, 175 lines. He used 175 different words. Interesting. Now, are you in Excel? That kind of thing? Actually, I'm a Mac user, so I'm using numbers. (laughs) But yes, Excel would same thing for you. Numbers. Okay. But they're probably comparable. Yeah. You know, if you're a real spreadsheet person, Excel's better. <laughs> but but I'm not. It, uh, numbers works for me for what I need it for. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds very helpful. So you're taking, what, maybe a half hour to do this tally? Something like that? Oh, yeah. Not even. Not even. Okay. And then what else do you do? Are you looking at the, you know, are they nouns? Are they verbs? Did they throw any adjectives in there? Yes. Then I'm going to look more closely at that kind of thing to see what my starting point is. But I I may or may not summarize that in the report. That's more for my informing my first session with the child. He used he used lots of uh, nouns and not a lot of uh, not a lot of adjectives at all. Well, let that let's start with the adjectives if we're going to expand uh, 
the length of their sentences, that's where we're going to go first. Okay. The other thing that I find very interesting to look at that when I first read about it, I thought, oh, that is what kids do. And it's amazing, uh, which is the false starts, repetitions, corrections, going back and starting over, sorry, uh, making revisions in their spontaneous language. Kids who have language disabilities do that a whole lot more than other kids. We all do it. I'm notorious. But uh, these kids actually do it more. And they're, uh, let's see, Ledholm, McLaughlin, Newman, Scott and Windsor, a whole bunch of uh, studies beginning in the late 80s, calculated frequency of mazing in typical language development. So you can use those numbers and say, wow, look, Jeffrey is just... Look how many times he stopped and started. How many times he said, um, how many words he didn't actually finish, put in the last word in the sentence. He couldn't complete the sentence because he wasn't sure what should go there. Gives you lots of information. And again, that's a measure you can use to measure progress. Is he doing less of that on a specific topic? Maybe, maybe, maybe he's fine in conversation. He probably is got good cocktail speech. But when it comes to retelling a story from language arts, he can't remember what those stronger verbs were. He doesn't, he doesn't have those at his immediate disposal. So we can work on those kinds of things and build that level of understanding that will reduce, in consequence, the number of amazing events in the sample. And, you know, it's interesting to me that everybody does it, children and adults. Uh, this little girl I mentioned whose parents wanted the video of her uh, giving her language sample. She had a, a number of amazing events in a 50 utterance sample. I think she had 11. Well, it was more than 50. It was 94 total, I think. Anyway, uh, but 11 amazing events and of significance. But for her age, that was below the mean oh, for her age. Oh. So that word retrieval, not an issue for her. Okay. All right. So where do I get that kind of really specific information? I summarized it all in a, a table oh. with ages and studies and the different measures uh, so that I could refer to it. And so now I'm, I'm sharing it with the world at Teachers Pay Teachers. Love it. Okay. So what is your store at Teachers Pay Teachers? It's called Clarity SLP. Clarity SLP. Wow. I'm going to go there and get that. That is amazing. So you looked at all of the research studies or somebody has written about it. Honestly, mm -hmm. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. I do not remember that word amazing. Is it M-A-Z-I-N-G or is it more complex than that? M-A-Z-I-N-G. Okay. And what it is is just like you're in a maze and you go this way and you hit a wall and you come back and you go that way and you hit a wall and you come back and you gradually get to where you need to be. And I thought, this is, this is fantastic. Yeah. This is exactly. And, yes. and if you think about those upper elementary kids with weak language, that is how they talk. That is their classroom performance. Wow. What a gem. Oh my gosh. You are amazing. <laughs> wow. I'm learning so much. This is great. Great. Okay. Keep going. So what else do we need to know? Some research talk about talkativeness. And uh, that's kind of summarized in total number of utterances. I mean, some kids are uh, taciturn. They don't respond well. But generally, when they know you, they will chat with you and so forth. 
So the, the sheer number of things that, of utterances that they produce actually becomes a measure of their, their confidence as much as anything, I think, with language. Mm-hmm. Are they willing to express themselves or are they going to do nonverbal stuff? Because it's very meaningful for young children, but also for older kids. They, they're going to back off when the subject becomes unfamiliar or when they feel like they're not able to express what they want to express. So the, re- the total number of utterances is actually a, a measure as well. And that's more of a time-based measure than a just uh, based on a, a 50 utterance sample, because you know what the total number is for a 50 utterance sample. It's 50. So you're going to give them some time, say 10 minutes, and you're going to count the number of utterances in 10 minutes, and then hope to make that change as they be, they learn uh, for pragmatics, for example, strategies for uh, introducing a new topic of conversation or uh, shifting the focus of the conversation to something related to what you're talking about. Those kinds of strategies could be measured with the total number of utterances, possibly. A uh, number of different words we've talked about. And that's, you know, to me, that's a really great vocabulary measure. Uh-huh. I love Judy Montgomery's vocabulary test, the MAVA, but she has a select group. I mean, we're only testing a few hundred words in the in both forms. <laughs> that really doesn't give us a picture. And, you know, when, when children get to the two-word utterance phase, Unless you're working for as a graduate assistant, counting the total number of words a child uses, has in their vocabulary, is beyond the reach of any speech pathologist. And you, you know, it's, it's in the thousands. And so, we're, and, and when they're in elementary school, it's in the tens of thousands. We, we aren't going to, we can't go there physically, uh, mentally, we can't go there. But uh, the total number, the total number of words they use in a given context it's kind of a like taking your temperature for that. If you're, if if you've got enough words to talk about this topic, you're going to use the average number of words. If you don't have enough words, or if the words are there and you can't retrieve them, you're going to get a lower total number of words. Mm. So it becomes a, a a health indicator of the the strength of the child's vocabulary. Just like if you take your temperature. Right. right now, you know, if it's up, you're going to go, oh, do I have COVID? But it doesn't mean you have COVID. You could have some other kind of infection. Uh, so, uh, and that's what a lot of these measures do. I mean, they, again, they're, they're sort of global measures, but they're real. They're from the child's actual speech. And you can redo them again and again and again, because it's also not something that you're going to breach the standardization of if you you could take a language sample every day if you wanted to because kids are talking every day you know this is probably the quintessential way to keep data yes yeah and not only is it documentation for what the child is doing but it gives you information as to what to do yes yes that's why i value it because it gives me valid information about what to do i can give the self i like the self I like Wayne Secord. I, you know, I, yeah. sure. Who doesn't? But, he's so funny. Um, he is. Uh, he's a funny guy. But it's taking narrow slices. I can get really good syntax information from some of the self tasks, but measuring whether the child is using it in conversation or not, it's a little dicey if I'm going to get that from the self. No, you're not. Right. <laughs> That's because you're not. Yeah. yeah exactly. But with a language sample, you can. Yeah. 
I want to be sure and mention there's a couple of uh, things commercially available that will do language sample analysis kind of for you. Uh, hmm. There's a thing called SUGAR that stands for Sampling Utterances and Grammatical Analysis Revised. Uh, SugarLanguage.org. Hmm. It's free. You have to do your own transcription and all that sort of thing, but it does it does some of these measures for you if you enter it at the website. Um, the other one is SALT. Isn't that cool? Sugar and salt. Um, <laughs> and that is the systematic analysis of language transcripts. SALT is a subscription service. I'm not sure what it costs these days. It is, it's pricey. But if you're doing a lot, I mean, it's really designed for graduate programs who are doing major lots of you know have lots of language samples together and so forth but if you know you're really busy I, this could be a solution and they also offer a transcription service okay so you can record the sample and send it to them uh, oh. so that's a possibility as well and that is saltsoftware.com okay what else do you have on your site regarding language sampling uh, you know, at Teachers Pay Teachers. Because I, I mean, what you are saying and how you have described what you do makes perfect sense to me as far as the amount of time that you have to put in and also the results of what you get out of it. It makes so much sense to do this. But if I were to sit down with a child, I could probably generate the recording and so on. But what do I do after that? <laughs> okay. Do you have instructions and, or, you know, do you, have you, have you, have you written any of this down? <laughs> I don't, but I, I, I could do that. I don't, I don't have that there now. You know, sometimes, you know, it is, things just seem so obvious. <laughs> yeah. Well, that why would I tell somebody how to do this? Because it seemed obvious to me. But right. what's obvious to me is not obvious to others, and what's obvious to others is not necessarily plain to me. So I, I, I will I will think about doing this. Yes, please do that. I've got several uh, pieces I could put together to put in to, to give some specific instruction. And I don't know, we could call it what, pepper? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, cinnamon. <laughs> cinnamon, yes, there you go. We need to stay within the condiments. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Is there anything we have missed that you would like to interject here? Well, I, I usually start, and I kind of just breezed on past it, with uh, uh, Laura Justice and Aaron Riedel in their introductory text for our profession, talk about the purposes of communication. Mm -hmm. And I, I have returned to those multiple times and now in multiple contexts. I mean, it's kind of the framework I use for AAC as well as uh, lots of other things and language sampling. The purposes are instrumental. That is uh, getting things done. I need this. Can I have that? Regulatory, you go get it for me. Uh, interactional, we know what that means and that's, that is a very powerful kind of uh, important uh, sort of uh, purpose of communication. Personal, I feel sick today. My heart is heavy. Uh, isn't this delightful? Those are personal communications. Heuristic, asking questions. Imaginative, uh, I love this because I, preschool was absolutely my favorite age to work with. And uh, 
you know, that's, that's their whole life, but they're using imagination to build their language and, and to, uh, have interpersonal communication and uh, interactional things going on and then informative. And that tends to be what we think of. I, I can tell you, you know, what, uh, what state I live in and how many acres we sit on and all that kind of stuff. That would be informational, but that's really often not all that important to kids. But none of those things is measured on a standardized test. Mm-hmm. If you use a language sample, you will get information about each one of those purposes. Very good. Very, very good. You know, I feel another podcast coming on with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, you were talking about all the different styles of communication and so on. And, and much of that is dependent on who you're talking with and if, if you have a parent that is saying something more than uh, giving commands. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. And I'm thinking that I probably need to talk with you about talking with parents and how they shape their language mm-hmm. to ensure that they get that variety yes. of words and utterances and so on. And is that something yes. that oh, you yeah. focus on? Yes, I would love to do that. Okay. Okay. See, that makes sense to me too. Cause, and I remember reading Hart and Risley, uh, Risley's book. Yes. And, you know, about their, you know, research that they did, their, their, they went out and they recorded interactions in the home and so on. And many of the utterances that parents were saying was basically do this, do, don't do that, bring that here. But, you know, they were commands and directives and that was, you know, that was kind of it. And that's right. so much of a child's vocabulary development is dependent upon those early, early years and I would think that a language sample would point out some of those types of things that kids are saying and not saying, and that it would be beneficial to talk with the parents and disclose some of that information. Yes. Yes. Is that something that you would be willing to talk about at some point? Yes. Yeah. I'd love to talk with you about Hart and Risley for an hour. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Such a powerful, enormous body of information. Yeah, I know. Yes, huge, just huge. And and it's and you know what? When I go out and do seminars and I bring that up, I'm going to say 98% of the people in the audience had never heard of that study. I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, it's appalling. It is because it's it's super, super critical. I mean, it's it's huge. <laughs> it's just very, very important. So mm-hmm. just know I'm, I'm going to give you heads up on that because this is a super important topic. But, you know, we need to close out here, but I can only say thank you so much for your insight, your valuable information that you shared with us regarding language sampling. It just makes me want to go grab a child and record them. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's getting over that initial hurdle that you can do this and it doesn't have to take the rest of your life to to do the analysis. (laughs) I, you know, it doesn't take that long to collect. 50 utterances, which is the pretty much what you need. Okay. Studies have been 100 and 300. And you know what? They're about the same as 50. Ah. So you don't, it doesn't have to take a lot of time to collect it. Analysis does take more time. But once you've done it a couple of times, it doesn't take that long either, especially when you know uh, what specific targets you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Very good. You know, I bet there are people listening that would love to contact you. Sure. Would you be willing to share your information, your email? Sure. My uh, 
private practice is called Clarity for Communication. No S on communication. And that's my email, clarityforcommunication at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you, Terry. Well, thanks for having me, Shar. It's great to talk with you. Yes. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello. Welcome, everybody. We are live now. I'm Shar Beauchart. And Terry, are you with us? I am here. Oh, good. Great. I'm so glad when this stuff works. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your great informative language sample suggestions. I love it. Very, very, very helpful. Very practical. And to those of you who are listening, if you have a question for Terry, please feel free to type it in and I'll read it and Terry will respond. Okay. So, but in the meantime, I do want to thank you all for being here and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you earn CEUs, as you know. Uh, we greatly appreciate your reviews and all of your support. So I'm looking here. Um, you know what, just to get things going here, Terry, I'm going to ask you a question that I kind of wondered about um, after we ended our recording session. You explained such information that was just wonderfully unique and and very direct and easy to do um, as far as generating a language sample. Um, and, you know, it seems like it would be a really good policy to just add it to our customary diagnostic protocol, I would think. But I'm wondering, have you ever had an experience where you used, you know, the, the regular speech and language diagnostic tools and, and you also did your language sample and came up with significantly differing scores and indicators? Has that ever happened to you? Actually, it has. In fact, oh. it happened just recently again. Oh. <laughs> I had a, a child of almost four who uh, whose mother was concerned about her speech sounds. She has an older brother who has significant speech sound issues, mm -hmm. who's in therapy, and uh, she wanted to be sure that she was on top of everything. She wanted to be sure that she got it, but she had been told that uh, when she did her screening to go to preschool, maybe it was, that uh, she was she was okay. She was going to be fine. Uh, and of course, we've all heard that before. Right, right. So she just wanted, she said, if you would just test her and see what, what you think. Well, the fact is, because she was not yet four, and still isn't, uh, the standardization, of course, is slightly different. Mm -hmm. When you hit age four, the expectation is for uh, speech that you're going to be able to be understood by strangers for most of the time in unfamiliar uh, contexts. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was not true for this child. Now, she was just short of four, but the possibility of her shifting from uh, probably about uh, half intelligibility for me just as an estimate yeah. to 100 percent intelligibility in about six weeks time is pretty small mm -hmm. so um you know that was that was one factor the other thing was though that um lots of times kids with uh, phonologic errors also have many language errors as well mm -hmm. lots of syntax and morphology and that sort of right. thing so i always give them a language test to see what i can find out so i gave her the self preschool and on that she scored on every measure given i didn't give her the whole test uh within 
the average range. Hmm. Her lowest score was on recalling sentences because she deleted some words, but that was a seven, which is still, you know, in the, the yeah. low average, but yeah. average range. And she had one score, a comprehension score that was a, a 11, I think. So, hmm. uh, you know, she was, uh, she would not qualify under Ohio's rules for special education, for special services uh-huh. by any stretch. Her uh, standard score on the Goldman Fristo was 79, which puts her outside of the average range, but not low enough to qualify. It has to be a 70. So, um, so I gave her, a, I took a language sample as I always do. And in analyzing it, I just, I discovered that most of her intelligibility issues are in connected speech, no surprise there, but they are related to syntax as much as they are to speech sounds. She did a lot more deleting of medial and final consonants in in conversational speech, which I picked up on, things that she did not do in single word assessment. and then, uh, but she also was deleting. She never used is. Hmm. She never used to. She never used any form of is. Her pronouns were off. She uh, deleted lots of prepositions and that sort of thing. She had lots of ideas to express, but she expressed them extremely incompletely. And that did not show up. Of course, we're calling sentences. It did show up there, but it was still within the acceptable range because it was a repetition task, not a spontaneous generation task. And um, so at looking things over, I mean, she was stimulable for every sound. She was, uh, she, I, there were none, I, mean, I think TH was the only sound that she did not ever produce correctly on the, the test, but the picture was very different when you looked at her connected speech, transcribing her, uh, sample turned out to be a, a pretty substantial challenge because of uh, the interaction of morphologic and syntactic errors with speech sounds. Was she marking the past tense? You know, how did I tell? All that sort of thing. It all sort of gelled when I looked at the language sample as opposed to if I had just looked at scores, I would have said, oh, just just go on. You know, she'll be fine. Uh, give her a little more time. Is that possible? Yes. Is it likely in my experience? No. Uh, because as I said, she's almost four. At four, she should be able to be understood and she should not have all these um, syntax errors. And in fact, uh, when I looked at total number of words used, her total number of words was low. So that tells me there might be some vocabulary issues or that her uh, difficulty constructing a sentence that makes sense limits her ability to retrieve and use the vocabulary that she has. Her comprehension was great, but she she could not, she didn't manifest it in her expressive language. So, uh, you know, in talking with her mom, our focus is going to be on some speech sounds, yes, but it's going to be more on syntax so that we can use those speech sounds in the context in which they need to be used. Um, I really feel pretty strongly that, um, in her case, certainly, but in many cases, those syntax issues are huge contributing factors to intelligibility because our English-speaking ears are waiting for those little words, the, 
to an is be uh, to smooth out the sentence so that we know what's coming next. When they're missing, we don't know, and and we aren't we aren't uh, able to shift and forget all that syntax knowledge that we have as native English speakers to accommodate what this child is doing in terms of deleting and omitting whole words from sentences as well as uh, some sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I in the uh, previous podcast we did together, we were talking about uh, um, children with uh, significant disabilities. And I found the same to be true for them that uh, if we can clean up their sentence structure, actually that their intelligibility declines as their sentence structure improves because the more words they put in, the less opportunity we have to, to understand. But when we can undergird that with correct use of all those little function words, then things get smoothed out again. But when they have a language surge, sometimes their parents think they're getting worse. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now you are in private practice, correct? Yes, I am. Okay. So if you were in the schools, the child would not have- Not qualified. Not qualified. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a real answer to this, Um, And I know that our time is getting close here, but do you know of any other way to discern what you found out? Uh, Is there another diagnostic tool that we could or should be using? Um, I think that um, there are some other language tools that might have uh, revealed this. Uh, Things with sense repetition tasks. I think about uh, I'm trying to think what's standardized on this age anymore. Right, right. That is hard. That that's that's the other issue. Uh, and to be honest, the thing that I used to do when I was working exclusively in preschool, and I would have kids who didn't qualify, who I knew should, mm-hmm. who were near their birthday, my recommendation was that we test them after their birthday. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be at the low end. Or when the next cut point was on the standardization and nine times out of 10, they did. Qualify. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I've done that. Right. And the other thing I did not do, the other thing I did not do for her was the sentence portion of the golden fresco, which might have maybe um, shown some of the, I mean, she would have had more phonologic errors for sure, but I doubt if it would have dragged her down to 70 as a, as a score. Yeah, I doubt it. (laughs) Thank you, Terry. Very interesting information. And I wish for everyone listening to stay safe and stay healthy. Hang in there. And thank you for all you do for your therapy kids. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.